it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, well, welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope everyone had a fantastic weekend. We have a lot to cover. It's going to be a historic week, unprecedented, as has to do with Donald Trump. With me in studio, Senator Marco Rubio. Uh, coming up a little bit later, at the bottom of the hour, Governor Doug Burgum of North Dakota. I mean, you might not have heard of him. But if you look at his bio, it's the exact type of person you want running for president or giving back in public service, a self-made uh, a billionaire who, uh, under extreme circumstances, is able to, to rise above it, uh, above it all. So uh, we're going to be talking about the indictment of Donald Trump. We're going to be talking about the arraignment of Donald Trump. I also want to talk about 2024 as well as what's going on with the China threat. But with me in studio is uh, an author that officially gets his latest book out tomorrow. It is Senator Marco Rubio, Florida. Decades of Decadence, How Our Spoiled Elites Blew America's Inheritance of Liberty, Security, and Prosperity. Senator, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me have here. The, I never, have, yeah, have all the I've times. never been to this palatial place. This is great. And you know, it's kind of good. I've been on the show, but not in the studio. Right. And we have, uh, we're so lucky to have so many Florida stations. Yeah. So this should feel like a home game to you, even yeah. though I'm technically at home. Well, it, uh, no, I'm glad to be with you in person. I don't think we've ever done it in person. Right. So. So uh, are you pumped up for, for this book coming out? Because it really is ripped from the headlines. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I think the important point is, is we start thinking big picture, right? Um, we're going to have an election. I hope a Republican nominee is our next president. And, and that's the plan, obviously. But then, you know, I think we have a broader issue that I think is happening in the country, this massive realignment. And there's a lot of ways to describe it. But ultimately, at this point, it's a fight in my if you want to really simplify it between people that think America is unique and special and there are things about it we need to preserve and save. And people who think that America is not all that special and great. In fact, you know, our most uh, important attribute is that we have a history of uh, discrimination and the like. And uh, and they've made economic decisions on that basis. So that's really what's happened since the end of the Cold War. And, and both parties, to some respect, is this idea that, you know, nation doesn't matter. Borders don't matter. Economic borders don't matter. It doesn't matter where things are made. It doesn't matter where the jobs are. What matters is how much money are people making you know, investors making back on their investment and, and how much uh, and how cheap is it to buy something at Walmart or whatever. And and um, those things are not irrelevant. But I think from a public policy perspective, those of us who make laws embedded in all those decisions has to be, is this good for America? Is it good for America? OK, maybe it'll be cheaper to buy a flat screen TV, but is it good for America? The factories and jobs have left our country. The answer is no. Um, is is America unique and special and, and worth defending both our value systems and the like and, and, and our history? Uh, yes. I think the answer to that is yes. So there's a lot to unpack here, but the book really focuses on those three big decisions that we made an error on. We, we, we unbalanced our economy. Um, we forgot the concept of nationhood. And, and, and all of that has also unleashed this uh, culture hysteria that, that has turned our country upside down and and, and undermine some of the most important institutions in all of society, from the family to the church to, to even our schools. So you teach at F- uh, you teach at college, mm-hmm. and have you noticed kids at school as you teach political science? Do they not have a sense of how great this country is? Well, I, I wouldn't. I think uh, our students are, you know, obviously come from all different types of views and backgrounds. The one thing I'd say about where I teach at Florida National University, it is I think has the lot hardest highest percentage of first. 
uh, in their family, uh, college students of any university in the country. So you have a lot of kids there whose parents are in America and have sacrificed so their kids would have the chances they'd never had. So I truly believe that among communities like that of immigrants and exiles, there's a special appreciation for how unique America is because you can compare it to something, what life is like in other places. It's hard to convince people America is some terrible country when you've lived somewhere else and know that that's the difference. So I, I certainly think, but, you know, mm-hmm. but here's my point. Um, universities should be a place where there's a diversity of opinion. Um, th- that's one of the problems we have now is there is no diversity of opinion. If, if you don't agree with this sort of new hysteria that's going on in our culture, you're, you're silenced. You're, uh, you know, they, they, they won't let you speak on campus and what have you. And, and, and that's not good for the country. And that's what we're seeing a lot of these days is the silencing of anyone who agrees with the hysteria. Well, the one thing you, you always hear from Governor DeSantis in Florida is where woke goes to die. So he wants to take that on directly, and it resonates with a lot of people, but also gets people upset. They mislabel a lot of what he does. Uh, the Don't Say Gay bill was nothing to do with Don't Say Gay. It's not even in the bill. The book banning. It's not book banning. It's appropriate books for kids of ages in school libraries. Right. But it's able to market it differently and label you inaccurately. Yeah. Well, And, and that, that's a risk you have. Yeah, I mean, but that and that, that really has become sort of the go-to play. I see it all the time. And, and sorry, these are even in articles now. It makes its way into the mainstream, right? If you write a, if you write a bill that says or you put out a proposal that says – Okay, you do whatever you want in your life. Just don't mess with the kids. Like, leave kids that are seven, eight, nine years of old age alone. Leave them alone. Heterosexuality, homosexuality, transgender, just leave them alone. Let them be kids. If you put a bill out there like that, it'll be characterized in the headlines and even in the articles increasingly as an anti-LGBT bill. And when the vast majority of Americans, quite frankly, don't care what adults want to do in their lives, what they ask is three things. Don't make me pay for it. Don't change the rules for everybody else and ram it down our throats. And don't mess with the kids. And but it, those laws today. I mean, the President Biden last week was total setup. Okay, this NPR reporter stands. He read up. it. He read the answer. Yeah, and the question. And because clearly it had been primed, right? So NPR stands up, basically goes on a two-minute editorial, and then the president, obviously, in his written answer, is this is hateful. What he basically said is, if you're a parent and you don't like your kids being exposed to the stuff, you're a bigot. You're a hater. And um, so, yeah, I mean, look, that hysteria, Mm. in addition to dividing the country, is distracting us from the big issues of the day, which is China is trying to replace us as the most powerful country in the world and and actually dominate the world, dominate us, put us underneath their thumb. And we're here arguing over whether a man is a woman or a woman is a man. You know, do whatever you want in your life. Just don't mess with the kids and don't ask me to pretend the sun doesn't rise in the east. Exactly. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio, our guest. Senator, before just – after the after the Cold War comes to an end, there was this so-called peace dividend, and we talked about restructuring and bringing uh, the Russia into the family of nations. The G7 became a G8, and they thought, well, wouldn't it be a good time to flatten the world in your book? And Thomas Friedman, who wrote The, the World is Flat, this book was a bestseller for about two years. How we all should just trade with each other. It doesn't matter about borders. You know, if you can make it cheaper in Thailand, make it in Thailand. You'll be – Americans will have more money in their pocket to spend on their economy. And what could be bad about that? Now, let's say all the intentions were pure, and that's just a theory. It didn't work. When was it clear in your research for this book that it wasn't working, the free trade was not uh, was more negative than positive, 
and that we should have pulled back. Well, and it's more than just about free trade. I think free trade can be a positive. You know, we have free trade agreements with countries like Colombia that are positive for the United States because they make stuff where they have something we don't have and we have something they don't have. So it makes sense there. I think where it becomes problematic is when you're making economic decisions solely on the basis of the market, meaning – the market outcome is going to – companies are going to make a lot of money because you're a company. You have your headquarters in the U.S., but you move your factory from America to somewhere else. The labor is cheaper, so it's going to cost you less to make it. Prices will go down, but your profits will go up. There's nothing inherently evil about that. We're capitalists. But what happens if that's bad for America? So we sent our pharmaceuticals. We sent many of our industries. It leaves us two things. Without those jobs, which destroys communities, families, all kinds of destruction societally and from, and from the family perspective. And the second problem is it leaves us vulnerable, the inability to make things. So today we have a very critical medical shortage in America, particularly of some of these key cancer drugs, because we know how to make them. We invented them. But we don't make them here anymore because it was cheaper to make somewhere else. You can't be a great power if you're not an industrial power. So I think the big problem and what became revealing to me was we divorced public policymaking and the interest of the country from our economic decisions, and they cannot be divorced. We want the market outcome so long as the market outcome happens to be good for America. We cannot make decisions right. that are solely good for the market but bad for the country. And, it has to be both. But you need a big picture. So on the daily basis, you see some numbers that look positive, and you see, well, America seems to be prospering. and but then you need someone to step back and go, look where we're heading. Look what this could be in five years. It could be in 10 years. Now we're at that place, for example, with chips, microchips. We invented them. We don't make them. Right. And if Taiwan's taken and Iran, if, uh, if uh, Taiwan's taken over and uh, China has it, they control, what, 70% of all the chips? They really control yeah. everything from our cars to our computers. Yeah, and that's why GDP is important, but that alone doesn't capture the health of your economy. We have a big economy, biggest economy in the world, but at its core is finance, which is basically moving people's money around, and services. None of those are evil. It's not cocaine trafficking. Those are legitimate industries. But you can't build an economy on finance and, and on services because they'll be useless to you in a time of conflict. So at the end of the day, what's going to matter more if there is a, another pandemic, God forbid, or a war? Uh, energy or you know, the ability to have food delivered through some service and an app. Mm -hmm. I think the energy is going to matter more. The same with food and agriculture. The same with the industrial capacity. Who's going to make our, our weapons to defend our country? We couldn't even make PPEs, you know, personal protective equipment, masks and all that during the middle of a pandemic. So you have to have a balanced economy in which these core functions are taken care of. And, and we haven't made those decisions. We've just So GDP numbers alone don't tell you the true health of your economy. Right. Uh, Mark Ruby here, Senator from Florida. His book is uh, out tomorrow, Decades of Decadence. You can pre-order it right now. Uh, back in a moment, we'll talk about what's going on with this man named President Donald Trump and what's going to be happening in his city in Miami tomorrow. Don't move. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. They talked to him for almost a year to try to get those documents, and he jerked them around. They finally went to a subpoena, and what did he do? According to the government, he lied and obstructed that subpoena. And then they did a search, and they found a lot more documents. And they're not even, I don't think they're even sure now whether they have everything. 
so they acted in a very patient way, and, and what were they were met with was, according to the government and the, and the indictment, very egregious obstruction. That is uh, William Barr, who said, I defended him with the Durham report. I saw how they, the Russia thing was trumped up. I thought Alvin Bragg's decision to indict the president was wrong. But this is not wrong, according to what William Barr has read in that uh, 49-page indictment. With me in studio, Senator Marco Rubio, author of the book Decades of Decadence. It's out tomorrow. Senator, your reaction to Barr's mm-hmm. assessment? Well, I mean, his assessment is based on an indictment, which is clearly – I mean, somewhat, all indictments are one-sided Right. They're the prosecution's case. This is the evidence. This is what we're going to allege in court. They have to prove it. And obviously we haven't heard the Trump defense. He'll have lawyers. So I don't pretend to know what the defense is going to be and what have you. Let me say these things because I'm pretty you know, comfortable saying this. There shouldn't be classified information in Mar-a-Lago, in Biden's garage, on Hillary's server. There shouldn't – in Sandy Berger, the former – a uh, Clinton uh, official who put it, stuffed it in his sock and was hiding it under a, uh, 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 a trailer back then. They shouldn't be removed from where they belong. I don't care who you are. So that that's now that's different from the indictment. Now is what is the damage to the national interest? What is the damage to the national security? There is no damage alleged in this indictment by their own government. They don't claim that it was given to the Chinese or stolen by Iran. They don't claim that. They're claiming that he did these things, but they don't care. So there's no damage to the national security. There is damage to the national security by this indictment. This indictment in a country that's already volatile, that's already polarized, is going to feel to a substantial percentage and not half of the country as a one-sided system of justice in which – by the way, this comes on the heels of not one but two impeachments, three years that we spent chasing a dossier that turned out to be fake – Whatever's happening in Georgia which is yet to come. Another grand jury that's been impaneled by the same special prosecutor out of D.C. Um, whatever from what January sixth from January sixth. What happened in, in Manhattan? I mean, it's just constant, right? So it's just a litany of, and it starts to feel like these people just want to destroy Donald Trump at all costs. That's what it's going to feel like to a lot of people. That's what it looks like, common sense. And then you compare it to like the National Security Advisor for Bill Clinton literally stole classified. He wasn't even president. He took it. And he gets charged with a misdemeanor. Hillary Clinton had – she destroyed a bunch of emails and, and did all kinds of – she wasn't even charged. We don't know anything about the Biden thing because there was no FBI raid of the facilities and the like. So you don't and have to they justify. they brought up Hillary Clinton in the indictment. They brought up the comparison, and the comparison is actually worse because she wasn't even – never even president. Well, she wasn't president, and, and on top of that, I mean it was on a server that could have been hacked. But they decided not to prosecute it. And, and, and so at the end of the day, you look at that and you start to say, well, where – this looks like an unequal system of justice. And then you add to that all the things that have happened. But this is going to go both ways because I already see the articles. You already see them, right? Some guy wrote the other day in Slate or one of these you know, rags. Well, the Amaga judge, they're already attacking the judge. So this is an attack judge on Judge Cannon appointed by right? President Trump. Who, who I know and who I supported her nomination and 12 Democrats voted for. Her, you know? so, so now this is going to be an assault on, on our system of justice as well. So the bottom line is that this is deeply damaging to the country. And on top of everything else, this is unprecedented, right? This is a prosecution of the likely Republican nominee, the likely opponent of the sitting president, and his Justice Department brings this 17 months before the election, not just a former president, the likely nominee of the the opposition party, this is going to become a flashpoint that's going to threaten the credibility of our institutions on both sides for and, and right. do tremendous damage to the country over an allegation that I'm not just, – if it's true, I'm not justifying that the documents were removed or retained. 
But there was no damage to the national interest. But there will be certain damage to the national interest as a result of this indictment. So this judge could only be one of two judges that's criminal in that court. Yeah, so, so the way that court – Yeah, there's two court judges. I mean there's a bunch of – we have a shortage of judges right now. Only two are really doing criminal cases, so it's a 50-50 proposition. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, this – but the judge doesn't even – the judge will not decide the case. A jury will decide this case. But nonetheless, the attacks have already begun, right? So that's an attack – on the judiciary that you're going to see, as we've seen from both sides. But especially, I mean, how many times have they gone after the Supreme Court, you know, and encouraged people to go outside their homes and threaten these justices? I mean, a guy almost showed up to try to kill Kavanaugh. So my point is the damage of this indictment is massive and it is certain versus something that maybe shouldn't have happened, whatever. But there is no allegation of any sort of harm to the national security interest of the country. I think you weigh that in, when you make these prosecutorial decisions, and they clearly did not mm. because the mission they were given is go put this guy away forever. Before the election, him. but it's not going to be before the election. He's going to waive his right to a speedy trial, which would be with two months, and it's going to drag out until the end of that election uh, if Trump is to be the nominee. Yeah, look, I think ultimately their, their goal, whether it's before or after the election, their goal is ultimately, as you see – get him out. Yeah, I mean if you add it all up, I mean you're talking about putting a guy in jail for 20 years is what they're asking for. Again, this, they're not – not claiming he sold it to the Saudis or anything else. And um, that's the rest of his life. They're asking for a life sentence. So they, had, they did a, a survey. They said uh, the ABC, CBS did it rather. Um, should Trump still be president if convicted? 80 percent of Republicans said yes. Overall, 43 percent said yes, which is basically his approval rating with the country. But but again, if you go back and this is my point as of 80 percent of Republicans, that is let's say that's a third of the country, right? Right. a third of the country. At least a third of the country views this as a political prosecution targeting an individual that is going to be the likely Republican nominee. They see it as political. It undermines – not only does it divide the country, it undermines the credibility of our criminal justice system and the agencies associated with it. That's the certain damage of an indictment, again, over something that even if it shouldn't have happened, there's no allegation of harm to the national interest and the national security. There's no – Potentially the the theory there is one because – and they have the audio tape. Does that bother you? Well, look, again, I I don't think that those documents – should have been there. And if I had been his advisor, I would have said, look, if these documents are here, we need to sh- send them back. They shouldn't be here. This is the wrong place. And here's why. I'm not justifying any of that. But there's no allegation that he sold it to yeah. Iran or the Chinese. But here's what's most interesting to me. OK, there isn't a day that you don't pick up a newspaper in this country and don't read about some intelligence that these same people that are out there setting themselves on fire are leaking to the media. And they'll go, and the media will go to jail to protect those sources. And that information is actually being revealed to the public. And, on, and in that case, it's a public service that we're revealing all of this classified information. So I would like argue the 21 that 21-year-old Navy guy. Well, on a daily basis, these strategic leakers within the intelligence community and within the government that put this stuff out there are doing more damage to the country than what happened at Mar-a-Lago. And the media is reporting this stuff, and, and they're protecting them. They'll go to jail before they give up their source. Well, can you bring so, us – you know, that, that's us, real damage. Can you bring us to the courtroom in Miami? We have third – real quick, are they, are they ready for this? What's going to happen tomorrow? Oh, I, I think so. I think everything will be fine. I don't – this notion is going to be uh, – nothing's going to happen. He's going to show up. He's going to do his thing. He's going to leave. There's not going to be any drama down there. Right. Um, that's not not going to happen. You know, it's an important book. Uh, Marco Rubio has had decades of decadence. How our spoiled elites blew America's inheritance of liberty, security, and prosperity. Senator, great to see you in person. Thanks for having me.
information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, we are back, everybody. This is Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Uh, Special thanks to Senator Marco Rubio for the great half hour that he was able to come in and be on. Uh, we got three things going. 2024, absolutely. The latest on the indictment, true. And the threat of China. With me right now is somebody who threw his hat in the ring last week uh, to officially be running for president of the United States for the GOP nomination first. It is uh, North Dakota Governor Doug Bergram. Uh, Doug, welcome back. Good morning, Brian. Great to be with you. So what was week one like? Well, the first uh, five days were amazing. We had this fantastic launch in North Dakota and then uh, Thursday, Friday in Iowa, Saturday, Sunday in New Hampshire. Had a great reception. Uh, met lots of people that were excited to have us in the race and excited to have us coming back. So we're off and running. And one thing we've learned is that uh, the Republican primary voters out there are very concerned about the economy, very concerned about uh, Biden's energy policy, and very concerned about national security, including the border and everything going on with China, Russia, North Korea. And that's what we're running on, those three things, the economy, energy, and national security. So we had some great conversations with uh, citizens and, of course, uh, Coming from a small town in North Dakota, uh, we met a lot of people from small towns in Iowa and New Hampshire and really understand that uh, there's a lot of the best of America going on out there. There's still uh, lots of places where neighbors are helping neighbors instead of neighbors fighting with neighbors and pretty energizing to get out for the First Lady Catherine and I to meet those people and see what's going on on the ground. So uh, tell everyone your story, where, where you came up. Your dad died when you were in ninth grade? Yep, that's right, Brian. It was uh, My dad was... Uh, World War II uh, vet after uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, he uh, went down the road from Arthur, North Dakota, where he was born and raised, a little town of 300 people, and uh, went into the gym in Castleton and signed up for the Navy. And uh, you'll get a kick out of this as an author, but he ended up, uh, you know, he had a college degree from North Dakota State, so he went through the 90 day wonder program. They were turning college grads into naval officers. He got assigned to uh, a destroyer. Uh, built in Bremerton, Washington, uh, was parked for my mom for over two years during World War II in the Pacific and lived to tell about it. But the ship he was on was the USS Wren, who, and you would know Solomon Wren from your book, uh, Thomas Jefferson, the Tripoli Pirates, because he was one of the uh, young men that volunteered to go on that on that daring raid with uh, with Lieutenant Decatur to uh, for the Philadelphia? burn up burn up the Philadelphia. So that's where the <clears throat> the USS ran. And I guess his good fortune carried through because my dad uh, was on, there was 151 destroyers at, at Okinawa, 129 of them got hit by kamikazes and he was on one that made it through and <clears throat> made it all the way through to, uh, to uh, Tokyo Bay on September 2nd, uh, 1945. That was his 28th birthday, but came home and raised three kids and incredible guy taught us about community taught us about you know commitment to community and service to country but like you said died when i was a freshman in high school and so my mom went back into the workforce as a widow with three kids and then uh, after after college i had inherited a little bit of land from him uh, and i mortgaged that farmland literally bet the farm to provide the seed capital for a company it was a tiny startup that became great plain software uh, 18 years later we were an overnight success story we'd uh, built it into a company with 2,000 people with uh, uh, over 100,000 customers in over 100 countries around the world. And that uh, company was acquired by Microsoft. I stayed there for seven years and helped build Microsoft. And then uh, <clears throat> then uh, 
sort of tried to retire, but that led to multiple more startups and more software companies and more job creation and more uh, interesting things going on. And then in 2016, we had an open seat for governor. I'd never run for office before and decided to jump into the race. We were the long shot. We were the dark horse. We were the first no one had heard of. We were down 69-10 in the poll before we decided to run. We said, let's jump in anyway. Uh, competition's good for the Republican Party, the state level and the national level. And six months later, we won the primary 60-40 and went on to win in the fall almost 80-20. And, and then in 20, that was 2016. In 2020, we got reelected by the largest margin of any uh, governor race in the country that year, over 40 points. And we've been uh, focusing here on driving, uh, you know, conservative principles, limited government. We had the largest tax cut. Uh, in the history of the state, uh, just passed about six weeks ago. We uh, finally solved the uh, the horrible conundrum of pension reform. We've got that uh, that fixed in North Dakota. That was a three decades uh, effort that we got accomplished. Uh, we've been focused on cutting red tape, which is uh, we had 51 of 52 red tape reduction bills are passed. And then the other thing, which is a full time job in North Dakota, is pushing back on the Biden administration because whether it's water right. to the USA or whether it's their, you know, their attempts to illegally ban uh, drilling for oil and gas. And North Dakota being a huge energy state, one of the largest in the country, we produce 1.1 million barrels of oil a day. That's more than most OPEC countries. And uh, so we're constantly in a battle with the federal government. And we also have got two air bases and 150 missiles in North Dakota. We understand uh, the important role of national security in our state. And so this is why we're running on the economy and on energy and national security. So, yeah, I mean, right now, if you look at the CBS poll, uh, likely voters, it's Trump 61, DeSantis 23, uh, Scott, Pence with four, and Haley with three. Everybody else is just 1%. I mean, I, everything you said is so convincing, and, and it's, I mean, what are you one of the most successful Americans in the country? You're an example of an American success story. You're somebody that made all the money and wants to use some of that management experience um, to help the country. That's what it truly should be, service. But how do you get your voice heard in an environment where no one has been able to outshine Trump, for good or bad? He dominates all headlines. Well, I think uh, we're, we're smiling on our team this morning because there was a poll that came out last night that had us at 1%, and we expected to be at zero. So we're blowing past expectations. Gotcha. Uh, we, we've been in this race for five days. We love the spot we're in because, uh, yeah, we got low name recognition, but everybody that knows us in North Dakota, you know, a, a state where where I pulled in bigger numbers than Trump in the state of North Dakota, people that know us love us. And so we like the position we're in, and we're just going to have to get out there and, and uh, tell our tell our story. When I was in first got in that tiny software company and I bet the farm, I went to Comdex, huge trade show. You know, I thought I'd done all the research. There was no Internet then. I thought, oh, there's like a half a dozen companies in this business. We're going to just walk in here and we're going to march right to the top. I picked up the trade show. Look, there were 64 companies delivering the same kind of software for small and mid-sized businesses we were trying to do. And and so you learn on day one, you know, you don't don't you know when when you're just starting your company, the first thing you don't do is attack the, attack the uh, someone who's got the biggest market share or the biggest name recognition. You got to tell your own story, and that's what we're going to focus on doing right now. Gotcha, uh, Governor uh, Bergham uh, is with us right now. So one of the big challenges, China. I think it's uniting Democrats and Republicans. How they plan on tackling the challenge? Uh, that's where the rubber hits the road. We see that they're dominating Central America and South America. We see they're trying to get a foothold in Africa. We, we see they're trying to split Western Europe away from us. 
And now we find out that this administration's revealed, the Wall Street Journal revealed, that they have a spy, they have a huge spy uh, base in Cuba, 100 miles off our coast. So here is John Radcliffe, because this administration is trying to say, well, this is something we inherited. John Radcliffe, who was DNI for Trump, said this, cut 38. China is in a Cold War with us, and we are not in one with them. And as a result, China is winning that Cold War because this administration, and you, you know, you've touched on this before, Maria, there could be a number of reasons for it. It, it. it may be an issue of cowardice. It may be an issue of competence in terms of the president's abilities. Yeah. Uh, or it may be an issue of complicity. None of those are good. Uh, but clearly China is gaining the upper hand and will for the next two years in this administration. Do you feel the same way? You think this administration is asleep while watching this? Because they're desperate to get talks going. Uh, to me, it makes us look pathetic. Well, I, I agree absolutely. I've been saying for months that we're in a Cold War with China. It's just that no one's acknowledging that. So, I mean, I agree with that absolutely completely. And my personal experience with China uh, first time, first time I was there was 1980. The, they had just opened up. The second time I was there was 1989. I was on our way back from Australia. We were trying to set up our little software company to sell software overseas. I swung through China on the way back as kind of a, I'm going to say half as a joke, but I had heard that you could buy software, American software, in a street market. We weren't even selling our product overseas at that time. Wow. I went into the street market. I said, do you have Great Plains software? They said, yes. They went over and got a five and a quarter inch floppy disk. It was, they were selling it for a buck. Our software sold for $5,000 a module. So <clears throat> I've spent the last 30 years watching China pirate every piece of intellectual property that I've made and all of our competitors have made. And, <clears throat> and on this regard, they can't be trusted. And so the war where we're in, we're in a cyber war. We get attacked every day as the state of North Dakota by North Korea, Russia, China, uh, trying to get at, uh, at our systems in the state of North Dakota. That's just a constant state, and the Biden administration doesn't acknowledge that every state is kind of on their own trying to do their own cybersecurity. There's not a national cyber defense program. We can't call the DOD and say, hey, the North Koreans are trying to get into a little school district by the Canadian border to get at the addresses of the parents who serve in the national North Dakota National Guard who protect, who are providing the ground yeah. protection for those missiles. I mean, it is just a complete lapse of responsibility. Everywhere. And again, the federal government spends all their time on stuff that is is not in the Constitution. It's not what the federal government is supposed to do. But national security and border security are explicit in those limited roles of the federal government. And when I'm president. Absolutely. I've learned this as a CEO. You're, I'm not going to be spending time on stuff that can be delegated to the states, delegated to the city, or delegated to a local public library when the president of the United States, whose time is just like a CEO, is super scarce. You've got to focus on right. the things that are the most important to the most, most number of Americans. Were they right, uh, Governor, were they right to indict President Trump? Well, <clears throat> the thing that I've learned from being on the ground and New Hampshire and in Iowa is that voters are very concerned about a double standard. Uh, they 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 see the news. They they understand. They know that Joe Biden had documents, you know, sitting in his garage, and they're just saying, "Hey, you know, are we in a spot in our country where that we've got a completely double standard? One standard for Republicans and one standard for Democrats." And so I think when you have that deep concern, and that's an erosion in the trust of an important institution, if Americans start to believe that the rule of law is not being applied equally mm -hmm. uh, in this country, you know, that's, that's 
actually more serious than any charges. I mean, that's that's the start of a division in where we're going. And one of the things that has to happen, uh, again, as I'm when I'm president, we're going to be applying the law equally. We have to restore trust in these institutions. You cannot have a democracy where people don't don't trust what's going on. All right, Governor. Uh, best of luck out there. Uh, we look forward to catching up with you along the way and to tell your story. Guys like you, I think, just benefit the country when you can use your expertise and your success and kind of spread the wealth around with your knowledge. So I'm so glad you're in the race. And it's been great hearing your story. Great. Thank you, Brian. Look forward to being back on with you again. Okay, absolutely. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. Governor Doug Bergram, back in a moment with you. Honest commentary, unique opinions, no agenda. It's Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. All the stuff with his son and the, the, the ties to Ukraine and China and the money, the family, they got, they got paid millions of dollars. And everyone's trying to obscure it because, well, it's better than Trump, better than Trump. If that guy was a Republican, they would be up his ass with a microscope. They went with this corrupt career politician. I mean, it's wild stuff, man. The media is overwhelmingly left-leaning. And if you have a left-leaning politician or a left-wing Democratic politician, and then you have this media that essentially works to support that person, they ignore any information that leads to distrust in the government or distrust in this administration or distrust in this party, this political party. And that is uh, Joe Rogan going off about something we all know. I mean, Joe Biden's been lying forever. He had the plagiarism charge in the 1980s, forced him to drop out. Then he has ridiculous comments about Barack Obama saying he's a dream, he's clean, um, uh, articulate, and whatever, uh, whatever he said about to insult the future president and his future running mate. This being named vice president saved his career. This guy was nowhere. And then to on top of that, lied about he would kind of degree he graduated with, lied about being the top of his class as a as a lawyer, lied about having a athletic scholarship to Syracuse at college. I mean, it's nonstop. And then you know he lied, looked into the camera and said fifty one Intel operator said that uh, that that laptop was classic Russian disinformation when he knew it was his family's laptop. It was Hunter's laptop. That guy lied to you, and people give him a pass and say, well, at least we could trust him. All I want, and as Andy McCarthy wrote about, said that if half the stuff in Trump's indictment's true, he is in a lot of trouble. Okay? He's, they said he's done. He's cooked. All right. We'll see how that goes. But he also said this. Jim Jordan, as chairman of oversight, should demand that he get an, upset from the, uh, an update from the special prosecutor investigating Joe Biden's use of intelligence documents without telling anybody, found at the Penn Center, found at... Uh, in his house at Rehoboth, in the garage and elsewhere, by his Corvette famously, the 1,200 pages in Delaware, how many did you find there? Did you find anything there? And we need an update. Because if Jack Smith's going to make some sanctimonious speech about saying no one's above the law and everyone should be treated equally, let's treat people equally. I think in watching the shows, people are absolutely dumbfounded that everyone's not abandoning Donald Trump because of this documents case. It's because your track record of not giving this guy any fair chance for five, six, seven years. Now, the one time you think, well, this is bad. No one's like, oh, well, what about everything else? 
For seven years, you told us how bad he was. He only won because of Russia. He uh, he uh, had that terrible Ukraine call. We have to impeach him because of that. And January 6th is terrible as that was. We've got to impeach him again, even though he's done and he lost an election. And now we're going to investigate him on something that happened 12 years ago with Stormy Daniels. And then we're going to have the attorney general in New York and look at the Trump organization and find something wrong there. You do all this and people stop going, yeah, I'm not even paying attention. They just hate this guy. Now I'm definitely voting for him. I was thinking about this, voting for this. Now I'm definitely voting for this person. Now, Governor Sununu has got a great point. Please show me how this grows Donald Trump's 43%. Please show me how he makes up the gap between Joe Biden that last time and this time. How does it help? Even though overwhelmingly the support's there for the GOP, it's not there for the rest of the country. What does it do for independents and uh, undecideds? So here is Governor Sununu, cut 33. It's just another example that he could win the nomination, but cannot, mathematically cannot win in November of 24, which is why the Republican Party uh, needs to look to another candidate. And they've got a lot of great options before. There are a lot of great options, but I do not say any absolutes ever. Governor Sununu is a lot about politics. He grew up in a very successful governor. I think he's won three or four times, two-year terms, going to do it again. He's going to win again. He would, if we, they were to do the primary in New Hampshire, he'd come in third right now behind Trump and DeSantis. So he's popular. He's respected. He's welcome on all channels. He is very vehement now anti-Trump, but he wasn't always. He's anti-Trump after January 6th. He's anti-Trump because he doesn't think he can win the general. He says, I'm desperate for, this, for the country, for a Republican to win. As of most people, and I think it would have flipped. Had it not been for abortion and Roe v. Wade being overturned last year, and if Trump wasn't running this year, I think any other Republican would be favored. But the problem is the negative is so high because he's been attacked so pervasively from all different angles. We'll see where this goes because Trump's not quitting. In fact, he'll be indicted at 3, and at 8.15 Eastern time, he'll be having a rally Tuesday night. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. You're going to have a big hour coming your way. And guess what? We're going to be joined by uh, Daryl Johnson at the bottom of the hour. We look forward to that visit every week. He's uh, running the USFL and, of course, one of the outstanding broadcasters with Fox Sports, three Super Bowl champions. Uh, three Super Bowl titles um, with the Dallas Cowboys. He'll be with us. And Britt Hume, who didn't play for the Cowboys, he went right into news. And we're going to get that story, that decision. I'm sure he doesn't regret it. So before we get to Britt, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The worse they treat us, the aggression, no matter what they do to us, spy on us, swerve in front of our planes, cut in front of our ships, the worse they treat us, the more the Biden administration goes groveling to them. And it's maddening. Why can't we be friends? That's the pathetic plea from the Biden administration to China. And now they get their high-level meeting. The, I'm talking about Secretary of State, the foreign minister. They buzz our planes, cut off our destroyers, send spy craft over our military installations, set up spy stations in Cuba. And all we want to do is talk. The Cold War is here and we're losing and we're not ready for a hot war. Something has to change. 
Number two. Donald Trump is still on top, comfortably, in two important ways. One, very simply, in vote choice. He's at 61% when people say who they would support right now. But in another very important way, in consideration. That's when people can pick multiple candidates, one more if they like, because this is a point in the campaign where they're evaluating things more generally, and he's up in that consideration. That's uh, Anthony Salvatano on uh, Face the Nation. Uh, 2024, how is the Trump uh, document case indictment going to affect the race for the nomination? And what's happening to Biden's party that has just about all Dems concerned? Number one. I was shocked by the degree of sensitivity of these documents and how many there were, frankly. I think the counts under the Espionage Act uh, that he willfully retained those documents are solid counts. But what Andy McCarthy said, which is if even half of it is true, then he's toast. That is uh, Bill Barr. Uh, Prison or the presidency? That's what's at stake for President Trump as he arrives in Miami in anticipation of tomorrow's arraignment on 38 separate, 39 separate charges related to classified documents. The case, the judge, the Miami security and expert analysis coming your way right now. Uh, Britt, welcome back. Thanks, Brian. Nice to talk to you. So in a way, as much as this is not great for the country, I don't think. It must be intriguing for you to, with all your experience, experiencing something that we've never thought we'd see before, a guy leading the GOP race to get the nomination again, not since Grover Cleveland, and at the same time facing jail time, which could be about a year away. What do you expect tomorrow? I mean, people worry about January 6th revisited. Do you? Well, I don't think it would be that serious. I'll be better prepared for it. The city of Miami, I gather, is gearing up in case there's uh, in case there's trouble, so we we can hope it won't. If something does happen, uh, they won't be overwhelmed the way the Capitol Police were on January 6th. I also think that uh, that uh, it's completely. Un- this is unlike anything I've ever seen. I wish I could say, Brian, that back when I covered something like this before, yeah. we found out this or that. Well, I've never covered anything like this before, and I'm sure you haven't either. And uh, I don't think we have any idea how this is going to play out. So, which is amazing is you got a. I think you got a pretty high quality field. Even the governor who I knew very little about of North Dakota, you look at his resume and you think, my goodness, what a qualified human being, self-made well, he, multi-billionaire who's you know, already run a state. conservative, but uh, whether people will, right. you know, people don't know who he is, it's going to be hard for him to achieve visibility, in a, particularly in a crowded field like this. So right. it's possible, but not likely. And then you have this up-and-coming governor of, of, of Florida. If you're, just, 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 if you're a Democrat or just an analyst who just, you see that and you see... Uh, other talent in this race, and you think this is a crowded field, but no one's getting any airtime, and Trump has picked up 10 points in the polls since the first indictment. What do you think is going to happen after the second? I think this one will be taken more seriously by the public as a as a, a more as a more important charge. Uh, the the Alvin Bragg indictment in New York was looked at by all kinds of legal scholars, right, left, and center, as being trumped up and bogus. No pun intended. Um, this is a different matter entirely. Now, look, there's no doubt that the Justice Department, the FBI, uh, and you know everybody everybody associated with has limited credibility at this stage, where Donald Trump is concerned in particular, and that will damage and does damage the credibility of this indictment. But the indictment on its face is pretty serious stuff. So if you flipped around to other channels, you might have heard this in the breakdown, uh, the breakdown of the indictment of what it means for Trump's fortunes. And I think that it is a, one of the most devastating indictments that I have ever read. It has to go to jail because there has to be a concrete deterrent for others who are contemplating 
compromising our national security information, mishandling um, uh, national defense information, which is what gave rise to the espionage charge, obstructing justice, conspiring to do all of these things. Wow, that's eye-popping on the second page. The fact that where they are, the hallway leading to the storage room could be reached from multiple outside entrances, right? It's also <laughs> about, I mean, I can't even, that point right there, which where the door was left open often. So let's just pause on that for a second. So, uh, and they went on. So that's basically the theme. It's indictment is very, uh, you know, it's, it's very straightforward. It has pictures and photographs and opinions. And the one thing that you can point out is no one's saying that he sold it to another country. No one's saying it got into enemy hands. They have audio tape of him being, if they, without a counter narrative, with him being careless about reading it, about this Iran tech deal. But that's why people like Lindsey Graham say, where does espionage come from? Well, it's under the, you know, the, the language of the Espionage Act. It doesn't mean the Espionage Act applies to a number of things, not simply, not merely simply spying. But, I'll, Brian, you said all the things that nobody's saying. Also, you're not hearing, at least so far, any of his defenders say he didn't do this. True. Absolutely. Uh, they're saying what's compared to what's compared for in the document. They, they compare it to Hillary Clinton. And Republicans right. go, yeah, I'll do that. Let's do that. Let's bring back exactly what she did and what Comey came out and said, this is bad, it was careless, or whatever term he used, but no prosecutor would take this case. That's, that's not right. the case here. That's right, and, and and that's the most apt comparison. In the case of uh, of Biden and and Pence and the documents that they, that they had in their possession they should not have had, um, they at least once they were asked to return them were compliant. Trump, if the indictment is true, is was defiant. Um, and there's nothing that he has said or his representatives have said since that really suggests otherwise. He didn't. They, nobody is saying he didn't give the, that he gave the documents back when when asked to do so, or all of them anyway. Um, and so that I think is an issue to be resolved. It'll be interesting to say, see what the Trump. Trump and his lawyers say as we go forward here, uh, they have an they have an argument to the public. It's more of a political argument, perhaps, than a legal one, that says, "Look, the Comey outlined a, a criminal case against Hillary Clinton, uh, and the way he described it met the terms of the statute in terms of the handling of classified material and so on." And he and he said no one would prosecute. And in this case, as you just pointed out, Brian. They decided to go ahead and prosecute. People are going to cry unequal treatment, and they'll have a point. The problem is that unequal treatment only goes so far as a defense in a, in a criminal case. It was kind of interesting, though, because today, Andy McCarthy, who I think we both agree is just a great legal mind, he's very – this is the way this affects. He says if half of this is true, Trump's in real trouble. But he also said, I want Chairman Jordan, as chairman of the oversight – to go up to this special prosecutor looking into Biden and saying, now you get you, there was an equal justice proclamation by Jack Smith. So let's see it. We want an update. You're chairman of oversight, an update on how the investigation is going with Joe Biden. Find out how many classified at what level were there and what things were compromised and what's not there. Maybe there's nothing there. But the being silent like you have been for Hunter for a five year investigation on tax and gun charges, letting, uh, running out the clock with, with Joe Biden is not going to suffice. 
if you really want equal justice. How do you feel about that uh, urging by Andy McCarthy? Well, I, he's talking, I think, about the perception of equal justice. Um, you know, prosecutors uh, pursuing a criminal investigation are not supposed to talk uh, until and unless they indict. And or unless the statute they're operating under recalls for a report to be filed, and that is at the conclusion of the investigation, not when it's still going on. So that's where we are with regard to these with this prosecutor investigating uh, Biden. Now I'm not saying anything's going to come of that, and if it doesn't, it'll raise suspicions. But just about anything that the government does regarding Donald Trump these days, this administration in particular is going to be regarded with suspicion. And that's a, that's a legitimate problem. It may not be a legal defense, but it is certainly a problem for a Justice Department seeking to restore its credibility after its misconduct has been enumerated in a number of instances. So you, you mentioned, you know, I haven't heard people really defend him and say Trump didn't do it. Those documents weren't taken. Uh, they weren't moved. Uh, they, weren't, they were just handed over. A couple of things that just stand out to me. In my life, I never remember... Any client that had two two uh, lawyers raided. Remember, Michael Cohen, first months of his presidency, gets his ho- gets his house raided, gets his office raided, and they take all these documents from Trump. And later on, we just found out there was an indictment three months ago from the indictment. They flip Cohen, they put him in jail. He talks, and next thing you know, Trump's in trouble. Then they get this guy Corcoran, who's still a member of his team, and say, "We read your text messages." We have to uh, you're going to have to come talk to us. Forget about attorney client privilege. And he's got to turn over everything. Can you imagine in our situation where everybody's attorney could turn against you at any moment? I mean, we're just taking this. Okay, I guess so. But that that could be devastating in any trial, don't you think? Well, it could, except there's there's an exception to the attorney-client privilege where it applies to the possibility that the attorney is engaged with the client in criminal activity. And that was what's been uh, used as the exception here that got the uh, the necessary warrant to allow, or the necessary court order to allow Corcoran to testify. Right. Uh, but could you always dredge up that speculation at any moment? I can't imagine any mob attorney would ever be able to follow through on a case. Well, I think that depends on the facts of the case, Brian. I mean, uh, you'd have to make a sub- substantial allegation with some factual basis that that there should be an exception in a particular case. And if you can't do that, um, you're not going to be able to get the attorney to testify or to turn over documents or whatever it is. Here's, what's, here's the, the, the going on the offense for Trump, what it sounds like. Here's Senator Lindsey Graham, cut five. Most Republicans believe we live in a country where Hillary Clinton did very similar things and nothing happened to her. President Trump will have his day in court, but espionage charges are absolutely ridiculous. Whether you like Trump or not, he did not commit espionage. He did not disseminate, leak, or provide information to a foreign power or to a news organization to damage this country. He is not a spy. He's overcharged. Did he do things wrong? Yes, he may have. He will be tried about that. But Hillary Clinton wasn't. And that that's his offense. And he went on for about another three or four minutes about that. Well, yeah, I'm glad we didn't have to listen to all that here. He's not accused of being a spy. 
he's accused of violating a provision in what's called the Espionage Act that forbids the conduct in which he was engaged. That's what the charge is. They're not saying he was a foreign spy or that he turned over information to a foreign government or, or exposed it uh, to a foreign government or anything of the kind. So while that sounds cool because it's the Espionage Act and it's a clever way to try to defend Trump, I don't think it holds up. Well, we'll see what happens. So Tuesday at 3 o'clock, he's going to turn himself in, and then he'll be released soon after. And about 8 o'clock at night, he will be 8.15, he'll be giving a speech. And if you, he's going to turn down his right for a speedy trial, which means, Britt, the experts say that this thing's going to be going to trial maybe around November. They'll delay it till after the election if he does get the nomination. And if he wins, he's, he wins in every way. And if he loses uh, and has a nomination – then he's looking at a lot of problems. Yeah, he is, and the country is too. Brian, there's a lot of talk about what Trump can pardon himself if he were reelected, and all that may be so. But look at the possibilities this way. In order for Trump to be elected again, a lot of people who voted for him uh, in 20, uh, voted against him, voted for Biden. And I don't think Biden got those votes. I think Trump got those votes for Biden. It was a, it was a reaction to Trump that elected Biden are going to have to decide four years later, after all we've been through with Trump, after after his post-election conduct, his attempts to reverse the election, after his dodgy conduct on January 6th, after all that, that that they're going to they're going to vote for him this time having voted against him before all that. I don't think it's going to happen, Brian. I just don't think the odds favor that. The only thing different that I think she should factor in is we no longer have a theory of how Joe Biden would be president. We got four years. And I think in so many ways he's been such a letdown. And and he's made us so vulnerable internationally from Afghanistan to what now we think with a threat with China on down. That people might go, yeah, that was, that was terrible. Uh, I'd, I'd rather you're the other guy. So the yeah, only thing to factor will... in, we have a four-year report card. Well, I, I, right. But remember, Trump motivates a significant slice of the Republican base to come out for him, and it may be enough to get him the nomination again. But Trump motivates 100 percent of the Democratic base and then some <laughs> to come out and vote against him. That's true. So when, you, you know, when you're calculating your odds here, you read the polls, you say, look, Trump, Trump beats Biden in a bunch of these polls. I would be very skeptical of, of, of those polls at this stage because <laughs> just remember – you want your candidate to motivate your voters. You don't want him to motivate the other team's voters. In the perfect world. You're absolutely right. Uh, Brett Hume, thanks so much. You bet, Brian. Good to talk to you, buddy. Okay. one 408 I see you calls up there. I'll get to him. Uh, then Daryl Johnson will talk a little football. Then uh, And also go through your emails, briankillme.com. Don't forget, tonight at 8 o'clock, I'll be filling in all week uh, at the 8 o'clock show, Fox News Tonight. Don't move. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. In terms of what the president, former president is talking about, is it what people want to hear? No, short, in a short answer. Um, they don't want to hear him talk about 2020. They don't want to hear him talk about himself or the past. They want to hear him talk about plans for the country. And yet, he's still leading. And that's Anthony Savano uh, of CBS talking about what the polls reveal, not giving him his opinion. He just telling him what the polls show. I, I found it very interesting because he says people want to talk about inflation in the economy, but yet people are 
listening to Donald Trump, who's not talking about that nearly as much. He's talking about the cases and not as much about 2020. I did not hear this weekend's speech in all fairness, but I'll see the one at 8 o'clock on Monday. And let's see if he could start talking about what he's going to do for inflation. What's interesting is that they were doing a study about what went wrong for Republicans in 2022. And everyone keeps saying, well, one of the things that went wrong is abortion. Yeah, that's true. The other thing is Republicans kept talking about inflation. But they didn't talk about what they would do about it and how they would handle it. And if Donald Trump comes out and says, I'm going to lower interest rates, that's not the math that's going to work on any economic principle. You can't just come back and lower interest rates. You could stop the raising of interest rates. But what else are you going to do? One thing that he should be doing and saying is energy. We are going to stop exporting energy the way we're doing. We're no longer going to be susceptible to the market in which we are. We're going to start producing our own, lowering projections and prices. That will help everybody, I think. It would certainly be a plan. When we come back, Darrell Johnson joins us. They'll take more of your calls. I also see your emails coming in. Not many of you are happy, but I'll make you happier. Thanks for being here, everybody. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Oh, how about that? A little razzle-dazzle. Darius Victor gets the pitch, and then he goes up and over to Bowman. And there's some good push by the old line, and that one's going to be a touchdown. Darius Victor straight up the middle. Johnson turns and hands it. This is Trey Williams with the hole on the left side. They're doing whatever they want now, and Williams dives for the pylon. Touchdown, Generals. They are putting it on them now. Ball knocked out. The pressure gets there. It's Hercules Mata'afa with the pass rush of the night, and he's going to seal the win for the Generals. And there you go. Uh, the the Maulers beat the Panthers 19-7. New Orleans uh, down Memphis 31 to 3. Birmingham 38. Gamblers 15 of Houston, New Jersey. As you just heard, 37-33 winners over Philly in a great game. Uh, joining us now is Gerald Johnson, uh, three-time Super Bowl champ, uh, fi- uh, fine Fox broadcaster, and a USFL executive vice president of football. How do you have time to live your life, Darrell, with all these jobs? <laughs> I just try to keep up with you. Right. But uh, I'm, I'm allowed, I know exactly where I'm going every day. You're being torn every different direction while keeping up with the NFL and running the USFL in four different locations now, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's funny. I mean, it's you, you wake up every day and you you hope it stays on schedule, but it, it gets off schedule very quickly. We've got uh, we've got weather in both Memphis uh, and uh, Birmingham this week during the practice week, and we've got huge games uh, week ten in in Memphis. Uh, it looks like we've got more weather to challenge us uh, in Memphis during the course of the, the game Saturday Sunday, uh, which we're trying to dodge this past weekend. So it's going to be an interesting next uh, seven days, Brian. I'm really looking forward. So there was a, a delay, a lightning delay. You had to put a game on for last week. What are you doing? Lightning forces you off the field, and you have a network contract. I know, I know. It's it's one of the the few times we've had to do that this season, and and we we thought we were past it. May is usually the the hard month down here in the south. Um, so once we got to June, we thought we were okay. But yeah, we had to uh, to get the, everybody off the field, the fans out of the stands, get them onto the concourse. Um, you know, wait for. The lightning to pass. We've got an eight mile radius that we use. Um, you can't have any strikes inside the eight mile. Every time you get a strike, you got to reset. 
for 30 minutes. So we were a little bit longer than we thought. We were just about clear, and we had a trailing tail spike uh, get inside the eight-mile uh, radius and, and, and kick us back to start to start that clock all over again on us. So it's uh, I don't know what the coaches did. I mean, it, it's kind of an individual player's perspective, right? You go in and, you know, it, you get out of your pads. You, you, it was going to be substantial. The one thing we did tell them is, listen, this is going to be upwards of about two hours. So get the guys off their feet, you know, let let them relax, and, and we'll keep you updated as best we can as we're moving forward. So uh, right now this is the last week of the regular season, and then you start the playoffs. Uh, you got Birmingham, uh, Birmingham, New Orleans, Houston, and uh, Memphis all over 500, and the, whole, the North Division all under with Philadelphia in first at four and five. But what's going to be the playoff structure? The same that we always would do, and we've had this question uh, in the past, and, you know, it's it's the top two teams from the North Division and the top two teams from the South Division, and they'll play in the divisional championship games, and then those two teams will meet in camp for our, our USFL championship in year two. Um, we saw what happened in the XFL. You know, Arlington's four and six, and nobody wanted Arlington in the playoffs, and they go ahead and they win the whole thing. Um, you know, we've got a New Jersey team that struggled through some stuff early in the season that was in our playoffs last year that's playing their best football. They played their best game of the season last night. So sometimes records get skewed because of things that have gone on during the course of the season. And, and we've got right. a couple of teams that kind of fit that profile. But in no way, shape, or form would we ever change our playoff format to accommodate winning teams with winning records over a team with a losing record just because – you know, right. somebody thinks that that's, that's the way it should be done. You, you have plenty of time during the course of the season to have a good year and earn your right to the playoffs. And and how many times do we see that team in the NFL? You know, back when it was 16 games, we would always hear everybody upset about a 7-9 and nine team that got into the playoffs. And how many times did that team go on and upset that higher-ranked team with a better record that first weekend of the playoffs? So, I mean, it, right. it, you go back to the Marshawn Lynch one, right? Uh with New Orleans, New Orleans is going up to Seattle to play seven and nine Seattle and, and, and Seattle gets after the Saints. So it's, it's not really a question of just the record. And I think New Jersey is probably going to be our team in the North that demonstrates that, that it's been a, it's been a season of adversity. They've kind of weathered the storm. They're in a bad position. They've got to win out to get in starting in week nine. And, and they've got an opportunity to do that. Uh, we're talking to Daryl Johnson, uh, three-time Super Bowl champ, now running things at the USFL. So the XFL is laying some people off, and they've made it public that they've lost $60 million last season. What are your thoughts about that? Because you know how hard it is to launch a league, even though it's the number one sport in the country, right? Yes, exactly. There's a lot of challenges. There's so many things. There's so many pieces. And coming from the football side, there's so much that I had to learn um, you know, through this process. And, and I, I had the opportunity to, to get a little bit of, of, of knowledge, you know, back in the AAF days, back the first go around with the XFL when I was with those two leagues, uh, you know, but being here at this level now, seeing, you know, how football and business work hand in hand to have success, um, you, you see how challenging it really is. There's so many things that, that you have to take into consideration. So it, it's not as easy as, as anybody thinks it is. I think that's why we've seen some of these leagues struggle right. in the past. And, you know, for, for us, we always wanted to start small and grow into the footprint that we envision this league to have. And that's one of the reasons that, that we're here in, in season two, you know, having some success finishing season one. Uh, we are lean 
Uh, we do have a lot of people doing a number of different things for our organization, but the one thing that we didn't want to have to do is exactly what the XFL had to do, is come in and you're a little bit bigger than you needed to be, and now you've got to kind of shift gears and transition from salaried employees to seasonal employees, and you've got to make some cuts, and, you know, that impacts people's lives. People yep. have picked up and moved to a different part of the country to support your team. And now here all of a sudden you're, you're making a major change. So that was one of the things that, that we really wanted to be conscious of, especially in year one and again in year two. And, and we'll do this all the way through, you know, okay, we have to have a certain amount of employees to function well, but we don't want to be to that point where we've got too many people and all of a sudden we've got financial things that are happening that, that could put some stress on the league. Gotcha. A couple of things I want to bring you to. You know, you, you, do, you do Fox Sports. you got to keep up with this entire league, and I was changing. The most predictable problem uh, in history is sports gambling. We know it's here to stay. We watch every update show, Fox Sports, Fox, uh, ESPN. They're always lead with, oh, it's a seven-point spread. Here's my ga- uh, gambling expert. And I understand that that's the reality, but so is this reality. Three players in the NFL were suspended indefinitely for betting on NFL games in 2022. Two others received six-game suspensions for betting on non-NFL games at a league facility. We don't know details of this, but the temptation to bet as the ultimate insider, as a player, is great. As a competitor, gambling to me is the most obvious addiction out there. When people want to get in the game, they feel money would put them in the game. Do you worry about this? Remember Mickey Mantle and Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays was suspended from baseball for being greeters at a casino. And, yeah. and you know, they, they weren't allowed to do anything a good old timers day anymore. Are you worried about how quickly we changed our perception of this, Daryl? Um, it, it has happened very quickly, hasn't it? When, when I played, we were not allowed to be in Vegas. You know, you couldn't yeah. take anything comp in Las Vegas. Um, you know, now we've got a franchise in Las Vegas. Um, and, and to your point, the, the number of different ways that we can we can bet on, bet on sports in our country, it, it's definitely become a fabric of the sports landscape. And, and I think it happened so quickly that we didn't have, you know, the precautions in place. Now, there has to be some responsibility on the player's side. Um, you are told this time and time again. You know what the rules are when you start every season. So I, I don't want to say that there, there's not responsibility on those guys' sides. Um, you know, if you, 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 you want to push it, and if you get caught, you get caught. Well, look, they're going to find you. And, and look at the, the – they're going to send a message, too, early on, because this is new, and they're, they're, they're charting their course on how they're going to handle this. So, you know, I, I would expect them to come down harder the way they have on guys who are early on in this stage. So the, the guys understand this is a big deal. This goes to the integrity and the fabric of the game. And that's the one thing. Anything that the NFL does, when you get into the integrity and the fabric of the football game, and you, you all of a sudden, the fans don't know whether to trust what's happening when they're watching games. That, that is the worst-case scenario for the NFL and why they, they, they really put up a stone wall against any type of involvement uh, with gambling. And now they're trying to unwind this whole thing. But, but that's what these guys have to understand, is when you start to break down – the faith and the belief uh, in the fan base that, that the game is being played uh, without integrity, then, then you're, then you're in a big trouble. Dude, big I, trouble I just that. wonder, I just wonder if people fully understand the ripple effect of this. The other thing is there's so many thugs that want to prey on these athletes, you go up to a 24 year old cornerback and say, Hey, by the way, if something happened, I could set you up for life. If you just let that wide receiver get by late in the game and suddenly this guy beat you with a step, and you think, well, that's unfortunate, that's part of the game, or did you let him beat you with a step? Do you follow me? I wor- yeah. I, that's what I worry about. 
Yeah, that's the integrity of the game. That's exactly what we were talking about. That when you create doubt on mistakes that happen on the field, guys get beat all the time. Yeah, you know, there's there, there's amazing athletes out there playing, but you can never have that doubt creep in that that game was thrown or tossed or influenced in a way uh, that, that was outside of football. And and that's that's the line that the that all these leagues are going to have to straddle now. And the easiest thing to do is you, you cannot be involved in gambling. It, it's just like the drug testing policies that they had back in the day. I mean, everything has become a little bit more liberal. You know, it's, you know, you couldn't, if you tested positive for marijuana, you were suspended for four games when I played. You know, <laughs> there's a there's a different policy. Now they ask you, why don't, don't you test positive for anymore. marijuana? Yeah. Uh, so, there, lastly, Saquon Barkley in New York is telling people, probably going to hold out. As a running back in their 20s, it's different from when you were playing. Like, people don't think that running backs have a life after 30, it seems. What do the Giants do? There doesn't seem to be much room, but yet he's certainly an elite back. What do you do? Well, I I think the hard thing there is, you know, it's been uh, a very uh, up-and-down career for Saquon Barkley. And and I think the Giants have, have been really, really good partners with him through this whole process. Um, you, you just you get to a point where you do something that's fair, and sometimes you don't like it as a player. I had I played on a one-year contract with the Cowboys one time uh, because they wanted to see me do that again. Hey, you know you, you've had you had a great season last year. Let's let's see you do that again before we do a longer-term contract. Uh, you know that that's what the Giants are probably going to be in a position with with Saquon. You know, hey, listen, your career has been up and down. You've had some fantastic seasons. You know that rookie season was unbelievable, and that's where all the hype came from. But since that time, it's been very up and down. Um, so you've got to just you've got to protect yourself moving forward. And the, the running back getting that second contract is is very very challenging in the NFL. It, it's become an undervalued position. Um, you know the the, the the bell cow running backs that you know the Emmett Smiths of the world, yeah. uh, the, the you know the Barry Sanders of the world. You know they're, they're not there. There's so much more. Uh, fluidity at that position. It, it's running back by committee. So the value on that position has really gone down unless you are like the best in the NFL and then you've got a bargaining chip. And, and, and I, I don't think that that's the dynamic that we're looking at right here. I think that the organization and Saquon are going to have to come to some common ground. Um, and, and I just hope the, the way that that relationship seems to have weathered kind of the, the up and down of his career so far that they find a way to get it done that works for both sides because he is going to be very important. And, and, and it's something that, that, uh, that, that the coaches are going to be able to expand on this year and year two is, you know, getting to know him a little bit more. What are his strengths? What are his weaknesses here in year two? Brian Dable is going to be able to be much more effective getting Saquon Barkley involved right. in that offense. Uh, Daryl, congratulations on what you got so far. Almost ready to to, uh, to check off another regular season of, of USL football. So where do we watch this weekend? Fox Sports 1, Fox Network. Do we watch USA? Uh, well, yeah, we're going to be over, uh, you know, kind of scrambled on the boards a little bit. Um, it, it, the great thing about it is, is all of our games. It, it could come down to three of our four games, Brian, are actually winning you're in. It, it's that way in the north right now. So you're going to have uh, – the, uh, the the Pittsburgh Maulers playing the New Jersey Generals, who who looked fantastic last night. Uh, even though Philadelphia came back on a little bit, they they played as well as they played all season. Winning your in, uh, we've got Michigan and Philadelphia. Uh, you know, winning your in. Uh, what happens between Birmingham and Memphis on Saturday? Right. If Birmingham beats Memphis, then the Sunday New Orleans uh, Houston Gamblers game is winning your in. 
Uh, you can't ask for more exciting games on the final week of your, your regular season than what we have on tap for our viewers uh, this weekend. So it's going right. to be awesome. Yeah, go get them, Daryl. Uh, I'll talk to you next week. All right, we're going to start scouting the golf tournaments too for uh, for for potential players next season with with a tackle that that guy made. I could not believe that in the Canadian Open. That was he <laughs> looks like he has some linebacker in his jeans. Right. Yeah, if you you got to check it out online if you don't know what Daryl's referring to. Uh, Daryl, thanks so much. All right, Brian, take care. All right. Uh, meanwhile, they couldn't have wrapped him up in that if Daryl would have been able to shake off that tackle. When we come back, I'll take your calls one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. What also strikes me, John, is the overwhelming detail leaves the Trump legal team with real need to have powerful motions to dismiss. Because if this goes to trial, the way it reads... It's rather overwhelming for anyone to be able to fight it on the facts themselves. Uh, that's Ricky Kleiman, a CBS analyst, uh, talking about the indictment and the specifics of it. And it's up for them to knock all 37 down. First, to try to offer some motions uh, tomorrow to get rid of some of them, some of the redundancy or whatever have you, and see what the judge Eileen Cannon does, who was appointed by Trump, and is considered a real good judge. In fact, I think Marco Rubio told us earlier in an earlier hour that he recommended her and is one of two criminal judges. So if people have a problem with her, tough. Miami, people think Florida, oh, it's red. Not Miami. Uh, that's very well divided. Dean, listen on WABC. Hey, Dean. Hi, Brian. How about this as a defense? I will not cooperate with a corrupt government and corrupt politicians. I want the people who are the power of this country to know that their representatives are not representing them. These people have been coming after me and with guns. We gave these permission to have guns to shoot us. We gave them that permission. They are coming after me for the last five years since I came down that escalator, and I told you they were spying on me. They have been proven to be corrupt from the Mueller report. They have proven to be corrupt from the Durham report. And why am I going to corroborate with these people right. who I know? But you got to fight through the court system, Dean. Don't you? You know, we don't want anarchy. Fight through the court system. Hold on to your same lawyers. Go get Jim Trusty back. And go fight it because you need you need uh, one or two, you need one juror in every count, just to say no, I I don't buy it, and that's what you need. You got a year for your freedom, and that's what he's got to fight for. Then you know January six is that going to be an indictment? Is the Georgia going to be an indictment? And then you have the situation in New York, which is a travesty. Patty, listen on KRMG in Tulsa, Patty. Hey Brian, first time to call you. Hey, so I have several things to say. First of all, uh, uh, when you said, um, okay, I lost my train of thought. Okay, when you said, why are people, you know, going to vote, or Britt Hume was saying, yeah. you know, why are people going to vote for Trump? My first thought was, it's the economy, stupid. I mean, look, look at what what has happened to us all the past several years. And then secondly, um, uh, okay, I lost my and train Patty, of thought. Well, yeah, just to build on your point, that's pretty pretty much my comeback was to him, Britt, the big difference now is we've seen Joe Biden be president, and that should be enough to give it back to maybe get some moderates, suburban uh, women, to say, okay, I'll go back to Trump. We'll see. 
We'll see what plays out. Let's do it. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moment to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. We've got a busy hour coming your way. Paul Sperry, a great investigative reporter, senior reporter for Real Clear Investigations, uh, a New York Post columnist as well. He's got a really good column out on some of the Biden investigators and how they might have, I guess, a horse in that race, and that is to make sure that Joe Biden isn't investigated, which might be kind of curious because nothing ever seems to go anywhere with Joe Biden. I don't know why that is. Maybe maybe there's just uh, maybe there's nothing there. I doubt it. I'm with me right now is Jonathan Turley, constitutional law professor, George Washington University, Fox News contributor. You can follow him at Jonathan Turley. Uh, Jonathan, welcome back. Thank you. So uh, have you been off television more than an hour over the last few days? (laughs) Just long enough to change shirts. That's all you need. So looking looking over these 49 pages, I've just from watching you and and watching all your interviews, the the major problem is the audio, correct? Yeah, that and the comments from his attorneys, and they are quoting attorneys with fairly damaging statements. The audio tape uh, really is a heart attack on a plate for a defense lawyer because it it contradicts what the president has said publicly and in court about declassifying everything. It also gives the government what I believe is going to be their claim of a motive. I think they're going to argue that some of these documents were taken as a type of trophy. And I expect that's going to be part of the trial. So when you look at this, we have not seen the counter argument on the 37 counts. So one by one, you have to go through and you said you have to have play a perfect game because at 76 years old, one of these counts to get you five or 10 years they could be they could be a life sentence. That's right. And you've got 31 counts under the Espionage Act and then a smattering of other counts. The the problem I have with the Trump team strategy thus far is that they're putting most of what they have on this argument under the Presidential Records Act. And it's a novel argument. It's not a frivolous argument. But it's one where the courts are likely to be disinclined to accept because it's what they're basically saying is that this began under the PRA, which is a civil statute, and then they switched horses and and proceeded under the Espionage Act. Uh, I'm not too sure that's going to work with the courts uh, because I think they're going to look at this and say, look, there's a genuine conflict here between these two statutes, but the PRA didn't got the Espionage Act, and the government's allowed to proceed under that. But my main uh, concern is that even if you win on the PRA attack, there would still be counts on the table. And, you know, putting aside all of what's said about the PRA, you still can't lie or obstruct. And so you're still going to have to deal with those counts. Understood. Here's what Trey Gowdy said last night, Cut 23. Jack Smith brought up Hillary Clinton. Brett Hume didn't bring her up. You didn't bring her up. I didn't bring her up. Jack Smith included that in the indictment. So is it therefore relevant how the Bureau and Department treated Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump in a trial? Will a jury ever get to hear about the disparate treatment? Because, look, like O.J. Simpson, the police can frame a guilty person. 
I, 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 both of those can be true. The police framed you and you were guilty. And I'll be curious what a jury does with that. So what he's referring to is they, they use Hillary Clinton in a comparative way? No, uh, the jury is not going to hear that. Uh, the This is basically a selective prosecution argument. And I can tell you, I, I can't recall the last time a selective prosecution motion succeeded. I brought two of them. And the courts just hate them because they don't want to get into the motivations of the prosecutors. What they do, as they did to me, is they said, well, you know, don't tell me that they were out to get your client or that they didn't get others. Just tell me, do they have a basis for the charges here? The rest of that is something you can bring up in the legislative or political realm. If they make that decision, the court will also agree on what's called a motion uh, eliminate uh, to prevent the defense from raising these issues before the jury. So tomorrow at three o'clock, the president's going to be walking into this court. And I understand he does have a lot of support. You're not asking him to come to New York City like you did with the Alvin Bragg case uh, in Florida. He's got a lot of people. He's got a he's got one of his clubs, I think, is in Doral, I think is in Miami. So he's going to be there and he's going to walk in. He's going to give a speech at night. Can you give an idea of how Miami's going to handle this tomorrow? Do you believe he's going to be fingerprinted? Do you believe he's going to get a mugshot? Do you believe there's going to be cameras in the courtroom? Well, he will be fingerprinted and processed. They can forego the mugshot, which they did in New York, and they should again. Um, It's not uncommon for people to be held in a cell during processing. I expect that will also be waived in deference to his position and the demands of the Secret Service. Uh, So there's going to be changes uh, or modifications according to his status that he should then be released. Uh, What's interesting is his plan for a speech is going to force the issue with the court as to whether she will impose any limitations on his talking about the trial. It's become common for courts to do that. I'm actually fairly critical of those gag orders. I've always been uncomfortable with them from a free speech standpoint. But I'm particularly concerned if it's applied to Trump because he's going to run on this case. This case is what he's been complaining about. He's, and, you know, Alvin Bragg in New York fulfilled his narrative. The Bragg prosecution in New York is a raw political prosecution. And it is exactly what Trump has right. complained about. So how can a court say, no, you can't talk about this case that's going to be a central part of the next presidential election? It's going to be tough, especially Eileen Cannon, who was appointed by Trump. And many people are think, saying should be challenged now uh, by the prosecution, by Jack Smith. But the way Marco Rubio told me, and he said there's only two criminal judges they have. They're short of judges. So she had a 50-50 chance of getting the case, and she got it. So There's no reason for her to recuse herself, and the attacks on Judge Cannon are disgraceful. That, you know, it's funny. All these people criticize Trump, and I think legitimately for his attacks on judges that he, were, that he found in case, various cases through the years. And yet now these very same commentators, these very same pundits are going after Judge Cannon in the very same way. She is an ethical judge. They disagree with a ruling she made on a special master, but she had reasons for that ruling. 
But it's really disgraceful to watch, uh, particularly yeah. lawyers, uh, ba- you know, bashing this judge. You also said to look out from you're very curious to see what kind of motions. So, for example, I believe this. So his attorney will go up there and say, I'm going to motion to dismiss what? What will they ask for? What should they ask for if Jonathan Turley was in charge? <laughs> well, some of these are going to be predictable. They're going to make a motion to dismiss this indictment on legal grounds. Now, that's important. They've got to do this carefully because the first decision they have to make uh, is to waive a speedy trial, or at least that's one of the first. The, the comment I made directly after uh, Jack Smith's remarks was that I was struck by how he dedicated one of a relatively small number of lines to saying that he wants a speedy trial. And I was chuckling on the air just because it, it, he, he really showed his cards on that one. The, the biggest concern for Jack Smith is time. He wants a speedy trial. Well, of course, the speedy trial provisions are to protect the defendant, not the government. But for, for Smith, the, the, the calendar is his biggest concern because if he can't get this trial going and get – a conviction before the election, yep. he may never see a jury because the Republican uh, candidates appear to be inching towards promises to pardon Trump. Trump himself could self-pardon. So it was very telling that Smith led with that. But So they have to waive that speedy trial, and then they've got to front load their legal issues because they're going to want to get this case to, into the Court of Appeals as soon as possible to delay this. Uh, now, they've got some good faith objections, and one will be this Presidential Records Act right. attack. They will also be attacking the use of the testimony of their attorneys. You know, the judge uh, um, allowed the government to compel Trump's attorneys to effectively testify against him. That could be another uh, motion that will be put forward. Right. So put it out there and then the judge will have to decide instantly if that was right to make the attorney turn on his client. Well, what she'll do is she'll ask for briefing, which will take some time, and then uh, she'll rule. Then the next question is going to be, will she allow what's called an interlocutory appeal? Will she be willing to delay proceedings to allow the Court of Appeals to look at this? I think she should, because this isn't just any case. I mean, you, you, we should make sure that everyone's on the same yeah. you know, playbook here. And she'll have to make that decision. Some judges don't. Some judges say, look, I think I'm right on this one. You can always ask the Court of Appeals, but I'm not going to give you leave to appeal. Uh, then the Court of Appeals will have to make its own decision. So uh, one of the visit attorneys, who's no longer there, wrote me and said that the guy's a good attorney, but he says he, you should see if you can get the search. They should approach it by getting a search warrant suppressed or make a case to dismiss the whole thing under the President Records Act. Do either one of those things have a possibility of succeeding? They have a possibility of delaying. Um, they also have a possibility of succeeding, but I don't think a, a particularly high one. I think, uh, I think the Court of Appeals, regardless of what this judge does, I think the Court of Appeals is going to be leery about that PRA argument uh, because uh, what the government's going to say is that, yeah, this began as a PRA issue. The National Archives handled it. But the minute the National Archives told the FBI 
there's classified documents involved involving national defense information. The government's going to say it became an espionage, essentially espionage case. And I think a lot of judges are going to say, yeah, you might you might think they escalated, but they have a right to sort of switch ponies. Are we going to find out about the motions in real time? We're going to see him go behind closed doors, whatever has to be done to process. And when he comes out, are we going to find out the motions that were offered? Well, I'm not too sure you're going to see motions on the first day uh, because this is just going to be an arraignment. It's going to be a plea. Not guilty. And then you're going to have both sides go to their corner. And the first round is likely to be the defense uh, putting forward motions. But remember, the defense has... A, a tricky play here. Um, if they're if they take my view and they should want to delay, then you want to max out your amount of time before you put in that motion to dismiss. You want to eat every day you can uh, if you want to try to push this past the November election. Understood, and that'll be key. By the way, we're seeing video. Uh, Trump has landed in Miami, is en route to Doral Country Club, where he'll spend the night and then be there tomorrow. He was in New Jersey. He had picked up stakes. It gets too hot in the summer for the Trump family. They usually go to Bedminster in New Jersey. So they're going back to Florida for this, just like he had to go to New York for Alvin Breck. Uh, So crazy stuff. And we're looking at two more possible indictments. So we'd be going through this again. Jonathan Turley, final thought on that? Uh, Yeah, I think that part of the funny thing about this is that this indictment is going to be the most discussed indictment never read by most people. I think people already have made up their mind. For some, it fits a pattern of Trump flouting the law. For others, it fits a pattern of the Department of Justice uh, and other prosecutors pursuing Trump on any possible grounds. And neither side is that particularly interested in what's in the indictment. And no kidding. And right now you'd be most worried about this, correct? Yes, I've always said that this is the one to worry about. This could land them in jail. I mean, you you have to tell your clients straight up, you know, these other cases are really flawed or political. This is the torpedo that hits below the waterline, and you need to have your client aware of that. Uh, You can dismiss it politically and publicly, but uh, in private, uh, you need to understand this thing is a serious threat. Yeah, I just hope because the reports out of his camp is they don't like to tell him bad news, which is the worst. You have to be able to tell him bad news. In fact, you want the worst possible scenario, in, in my view. I would want that if, in my attorney. Um, and then no, make sure it doesn't happen. Right. Yeah, All right, Jonathan, uh, I hope to talk to you during the week. I'm doing the 8 o'clock show, and I have your resume with me and your headshot. And I'm going to be offering <laughs> you offering you each and every night, Okay. <laughs> Sounds great, Brian. Thanks. You got it. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. I see all your calls up there. I'll get them. Then Paul Sperry will inform us about somebody on the Biden investigation team that might be compromised. Don't move. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. 
Target lost billions of dollars because they tried to have this pride children's shirts yeah. and obviously the Bud Light thing with Dylan Mulvaney. They've lost 20 plus billion dollars. You imagine you're just going to send a can to some confused person that day 365 of womanhood and you send that person a f- can with their face on and your company loses 20 billion dollars. That is wild. So we're seeing that now, but yeah. we never saw that before, where people are going, enough, right? enough. Stop shoving this down everybody's throat. When I go to Target, I don't want to see tuck pants. Where you, like They're designed to help you tuck your dick. Like, hey, that's not normal. And I don't want that right in front of everybody. But there's a lot of just real weirdness with this group of people that is trying to, like, change the way people view sexuality and gender and all these different... It's like they're, they're proselytizing. Uh, that is little Joe Rogan saying what we've been saying here, uh, but Joe Rogan doing his, his uh, unique style, uh, talking about just how people organically, not because of a marketing ploy, not because of a, uh, an anti-woke push, just people walking around and going, this is ridiculous, I'm not buying that. Oh, is that, is that the, who's that, Dylan Mulvaney on the can of Bud, Bud Light? Excuse me, I'm going to get Modella. That's what they're saying, I'd get Corona. But people just walk, and they're not giving up. Kohl's, Target, Bud Light, there's a few of them out there, and they keep doing it, and it's not as if they can't learn from it. They, I guess they want to absorb the loss now for long-term gain. I don't see it happening. I mean, uh, what, uh, what Joe Biden did over the weekend, saying that you're the most brave, uh, addressing a, uh, a group of pride celebrators, uh, gay people, saying you're the bravest people I know. Really? Are you the same commander-in-chief who presides over our military, over our police? You're the bravest people you know or people that go up to their parents and say, I'm gay? I'm pretty sure that's more accepted today than ever before. And to me, it's just uh, flat-out pandering. And now it's his biggest mission? As someone wrote to me over the weekend, wait a second. You have one day for people who die in battle, Memorial Day. But you have a month for Pride Month? Does that make sense to anybody? So I, th- I think we're, we're overcompensating. But a lot of people are writing just about uh, the show so far, BrianKillMe.com. And some people saw we went on Instagram Live on the break. So uh, some people writing to me, well, you know what? We'll go over that next. When we come back, uh, we'll be able to talk to Paul Sperry and talk about the investigation not many people are talking about. And that is what's happening on the left. Yeah. Uh, with Joe Biden. And what's not happening? Four years on a tax case. Many referred over to this Delaware U.S. District Attorney. He's not doing anything. Maybe we'll find out why. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The FBI tried to act like for weeks that the form didn't exist. And not until Senator Grassley and I got on the phone with Director Ray, and Senator Grassley told Director Ray that both uh, Senator Grassley and myself had already read the form 1023 from a whistleblower, so we knew darn well it existed. Did he finally admit that it did exist? So once uh, the FBI allowed me and Jamie Raskin, uh, my counterpart on the House uh, Oversight Committee, to go in and look at it, I read it again and I realized that there were two footnotes in there that referenced other 1023s. 
So, you know, this is going to turn out, I think, a lot like the suspicious activity reports that the Treasury Cabinet had on the Bidens. There are a lot more of these than what the federal government wants to admit. And the question is, why hasn't the federal government done anything about it? Yeah, that'll be key. Uh, we don't know. It could be of two things. He gave it to Delaware and uh, Weiss, who's in charge over there, didn't give it to anybody else, or they decide just to sit on it. Paul Sperry joins us now. He's a senior reporter for the RealQueerInvestigations.com, New York Post columnist and best-selling author. Uh, Paul, welcome back. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. Uh, Paul, as usual, while everybody's focused on Trump and the indictment, you said, hey, wait a second. What's going on on the other side? What's going on with the special counsel, special prosecutor investigation into the uh, classified documents in the possession of Joe Biden? And you came up with the name Kathy Chung. Could you tell everyone who Kathy Chung is? Well, uh, Hunter recommended Chung to his father for the White House job uh, when he was vice president. And and you're right, although he wouldn't know it from the Washington media coverage, there's another documents investigation going on by another special counsel. And Biden's trusted aide, Kathy Chung, is at the center of it. And we found out she has a history of playing hide-and-seek with sensitive documents going back to the 1990s Chinagate scandal. Uh, Yet she's now in a high-level position at the Pentagon where she has access to highly classified military secrets. Currently. Right. So yet she does almost take responsibility for bringing those documents to the Penn Center after the vice president left office, right? And uh, Chinatown. Uh, So uh, just to back up, uh, as Vice President Biden was moving out of the White House in early 2017, he directed Chung to pack up 13 boxes, and they turned out to be stuffed with top-secret documents. And she loaded those boxes in her car, personally loaded them in her personal vehicle, and dropped them off at a storage space that she leased in the Chinatown district of D.C. And then not long... uh, before she dropped them off there, a suspected Chinese spy dropped off an $80,000 diamond at Hunter Biden's hotel room. This is Hunter's uh, so-called business partner, Chinese business partner, uh, Yi Jinming, who uh, chair- was chairman of Cefsi China Energy. Uh, and then, as you said, um, Chung moved the White House secrets again to the China-funded Penn Biden Center, where they were stored in an unlocked, unsecured room and Hunter had access to that office. And by the way, the the uh, White House uh, dissembled, to put it gently, uh, when they said that that uh, that those documents were stored in a locked closet. That's not true. And um, Chung has admitted that under testimony that it was not locked. Anybody could go in there. They were just piled up in a room. And yet Trump is getting all the grief. He is, uh, and we just, we only hear this. They're not close to being done with the investigation. And today I see Andy McCarthy said he recommends that the chairman of Oversight, Jordan, inquire about an update. Update me on how this investigation's going, because if you want equal justice, what about we try to get equal justice? Right. Yeah, you're not hearing any of this from the mainstream media. Um, all the leaks have been coming out of one side, out of the Trump investigation. Um, but there's another special counsel probe led by Rob Herr who's quietly investigating Biden and Chung as well as Hunter and has already obtained over 100 pages of emails and texts from Chung and her lawyers. So what do you think Chung is? How would you uh, what do you think her her motive is? Just a loyal, uh, a loyal Biden disciple? 
extremely loyal. Uh, they go back a very long time. Um, she is uh, was instrumental with um, uh, you know organizing, arranging things for the entire Biden family. She was the one who uh, arranged the uh, scheduling and the booking and all the details for that controversial 2013 trip that Hunter took with his father, um, Air Force Two, to Beijing, uh, where he had one of his uh, other Chinese uh, investor partners. Uh, he arranged a handshake with uh, the vice president with one of his partners over there. Um, she has fed Hunter very sensitive cell phone numbers for chiefs of staff, um, former attorney general, the Clintons, former presidents. Um, and um, so she she is very, very close to Hunter. Uh, they go back a long way. Uh, like I said, Hunter recommended Chung to his father for the White House job. And then Hunter and Kathy Chung, they worked together in the Clinton Commerce Department in 1999 when Chung got caught up in another documents <laughs> investigation uh, that was tied to the Chinagate scandal, which I'm sure you recall. Um, a judge ordered her to turn over sensitive government documents exposing her Chinese boss, John Wong's dealings with China while he was working at the Commerce Department in a high-level position that Clinton had put him in. And uh, Chung led a search team for those missing documents, and the judge, this was a U.S. district judge, uh, sanctioned them for withholding and even destroying documents uh, under court order. And so Wong was later convicted of raising illegal Chinese cash for Clinton, and in the end, uh, Chung stonewalled the court, and Hunter's law firm, we found out from, from all these documents, ended up defending her. Uh, so so this, is all, this is all swirling about. How hard was this for you to dig this up? It was really tough because um, I was looking through court records to see if she's been involved in any other you know, court cases, federal, state. And her name turned up uh, as filing a declaration in this uh, John Wong Commerce Department case, but I, I couldn't get the actual declaration to confirm that it's the same Kathy Chung. I knew Kathy Chung had, had worked previously as administrator at the Commerce Department and that she had uh, overlapped with um, Hunter's – Hunter had kind of a sinecure job there that um, obviously his father set up with Clinton to give him this, this job, e-commerce uh, job at Commerce, and they work together. That's where they that's where they met. And um, but then when you try and find through Pacer and through the court system, the electronic federal system for all these declarations and filings, it's not there. So I, it took a while to get a clerk at the U.S. District Court to finally search through their archives and find this declaration, and then I was able to confirm that it was the same Kathy Chung uh, who was involved in this. Um, this documents investigation that was going on at the Commerce Department during the whole Chinagate scandal. Well, you know, I'm wondering with the Chinagate scandal, uh, why wasn't there more curiosity with that, especially with China? The only thing we can agree on right now in Washington is that China seems to be our number one threat and in every way, shape or form. And the one thing that we know they do is put people in here who pretend to be students or want to get involved in work, but they're really first allegiances to their country. And right. why would people not be more curious about that? 
Well, that's what investigators want to know in this case. I mean, unlike Mar-a-Lago, Biden's case is a huge national security breach because at the same time he was stockpiling classified documents, his family was taking millions of dollars in Chinese cash from suspected Chinese spies. Uh, and both these things happened. There's there's an overlap in these scandals. Both these things happened in the same 2017-2018 time period. And investigators want to know, what did the Biden's Chinese partners get for their $6 million? Uh, did they use their contacts with the Bidens to gain access to U.S. intelligence? Did any of the documents that Chung packed and stashed end up passing through foreign hands? Right. Uh, and I don't know how, you know, being this is not a moving target. You know, the University of Delaware has documents. You know, the Chinatown has documents. You know, his garage has documents. I understand his lawyer's office in Massachusetts has documents. This is not a, I yep. mean, this is a state, this is a state investigation. How many people do you need? They're stashed and scattered all over. I mean, but uh, Trump's were just in one place, central location, Mar-a-Lago. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Chung has a history of playing fast and loose with government documents. And even though she's under investigation for mishandling top secret material, she still maintains a top secret security clearance at the Pentagon, which is where Biden installed her as an assistant to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Where she is right now. That's unbelievable. Right. Yeah. And one of the most inarticulate secretary of defenses we've ever had at a time which we we need it most. It's unbelievable. Uh, Paul, how do you see this thing shaking out with the president? We've never seen anything quite like this. You know he's going to be in court tomorrow. You know this thing's going to go on for a year or two because he's going to waive his right to a speedy trial, of course. I mean, th- this is going to be something we none of us have ever seen this before. Yeah, the the, the first thing they'll do is um, file a motion to dismiss based on prosecutorial abuse. Um, how uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith pierced the attorney-client privilege uh, claims, uh, which are usually sacrosanct, and went after um, Evan Corcoran, Trump's attorney, yeah. uh, pre- pressured him to turn over privilege notes. Uh, so that, that's the first thing they're going to do to you know, try and uh, dismiss the obstruction charge. Um, and then, yeah, as you say, this will be dra- this will drag out uh, filings and motions uh, galore for you know probably years, uh, definitely several several months. And um, uh, it, the the thing that no one's talking about is Biden keeps pretending that he had nothing to do with the Mar-a-Lago investigation. That you know he was completely hands off. But if you look at some of the documents between. Um, the National Archives and the White House Counsel's Office, uh, it's very clear that the referral, the criminal referral to the Justice Department and the FBI came from the White House. So Biden had to authorize that in the very beginning. And his signature is on these documents? No, his signature is not, but the White House Counsel's, his White House Counsel, Yes. Uh, so the White House counsel would never have signed on, off on something so sensitive without first consulting with the president. And uh, I thought that was so telling when asked, uh, what about the corruption that you have involved with, with the money? And he said, where's the money? Right. <laughs> it, it's almost daring you to find out you'll never find it. That, that's that's him. It's just like it's you know what that's similar to is when he basically self-incriminated himself, boasting about how he got um, 
uh, Shokin, the, the Ukrainian prosecutor, fired by by extorting, leveraging the one billion dollar in U yeah. billion dollars in USAID. He, he went and bragged about that in that Council of Foreign Relations um, forum, and, and they had it on video. And then if you look over at his aide at the time, Michael Carpenter, who by the way was uh, uh, one of the principals at the Penn Biden Center later, but you look at his face and he just looks down and he just knows that Biden stepped right into that. Hear you. Paul, uh, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate your investigative work. Always uh, always blazing a trail. Paul Sperry, thank you. Thanks, Brian. Anytime. You got it. RealClearInvestigations.com to find out more. Listen, we come back. We'll find out if there's indeed more to know. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, just a quick reminder, I'll be on 8 o'clock tonight, Fox News tonight, right on the Fox News channel. Hope everyone's listening. And if you ever missed the show, uh, BrianKilmeadeShow.com, you can get the podcast wherever you get the podcast. So many people have busy schedules or they're working right now and they get it. And we really appreciate it. And it just makes me wonder if you need to know more. More to know. Invest in premium American whiskey as it ages. The older it gets, the better it gets. And the more valuable it gets. Go to caskdeeds.com. That's caskdeeds.com to learn more. Paid for by Spirits Capital Corporation. So Americans are getting tired of tipping everything. Now, we're used to tipping at restaurants. We're used to tipping at diners. But are we used to tipping at Starbucks? Are we used to tipping... When you order food and pick it up at a restaurant, I mean, you're picking it up and you ordered. You're not eating there and you're not asking for Uber Eats to come to your house. So about two-thirds, uh, 66% of the survey have a, this ne- have a negative view about tipping. 41% they feel like businesses should pay their employees better rather than asking us to pay them better. And people are feeling annoyed about pre-entered tip screens. 32% sharing the present tipping structure. Um, has gotten out of control, 30% say that, and noting that they would be willing to pay higher prices if they could do away with tipping, 16%, and being confused about when to tip and how to tip, 15%. How do you feel about it? Um, I have a few thoughts on it. One, I mean, I think anyone who thinks, oh, pay them more so we don't have to tip, has never been to a country where our service industry doesn't rely on tips because the service is terrible. So you would change your tune on that quickly. The other thing is just, A, with inflation like the article states, but then... Something from COVID's now stuck around. Now you have to pay the extra 3% if you're using a credit card. So everything's getting tacked on. It's just getting to be a lot. Yeah, in some place I just realized that. That's true. But when someone makes you a smoothie, do they get a tip? Now, I appreciate that they're there in the morning at shift work. Yes. But do they get a tip? They used to just maybe, let's see, a canister, tips, welcome. You throw a dollar in there. But now they flip it around. They do, and, and then the percentages, so right? So then they're getting more than just, like, the buck, which I guess with inflation maybe they should. If they go above and beyond, if they maybe give you some extra, I don't know, right. protein powder or something. I mean, if you're dollar for dollar, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, that ma- that really matters. You know, if I'm picturing the guy for making my Subway sandwich, I'm, I'm already paying for the sandwich. So and it's great. I mean, And then really, you feel guilty so you don't go in. Well, that is true, too. And then also, I was sincerely, like, with inflation, like, I don't get coffee most days, but when we're traveling for the bookstore, like, you know, we stop at Starbucks all the time. It's obscene what you people pay oh, for a cup of, one cup of anything. I know. Now we went designer coffee. Next. Uh, I am so upset about this. This guy, Alex Stein, is such a clown. He's a conservative lunatic. 
Brittany Griner has been heckled about being a being the subject of a prisoner swap. Listen, Do you I, know there, I know there were problems with that. People might, but we're glad she's home. Can't we agree that we're glad the 32 year old is home? Listen to Alex Stein. Do you still want to boycott America, Brittany? Stop. 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 I'm weird. Why? She hates Stop. America. I, I, what about the merchant of death, Brent? And he's talking about being exchanged for Victor Be- Boot. He was being held in U.S. jail for killing a lot of people and providing arms for a lot of countries and people. So he was exchanged for that. And Paul Whalen still stays behind bars. I don't think you should be heckling her at a at an airport. Do you? No, I agree with you there. He shouldn't be heckling her. It's, it's annoying. I mean, it's not her fault the Biden administration made the decisions it did for a boot. And for right. And she made a bad decision. Yeah. 100%. Right. Over there. Right. With uh, she never denied that she had whatever she had. The hemp drugs, oil, but whatever it was. It's crazy. It is. But Next. she did now have a stand. Right. She said she now views the national anthem differently. Which right. Which was a positive. Charles Barkley reveals the blunt reason why he lost 60 pounds. His doctor told him this. My doctor told me I was fat, uh, so I'm down 60 pounds. She said to me, there's no fat old people. That's only fat young people. And she said, if you don't get your stuff together, you're not going to be around. So that's the reason I'm getting thanked out to my doctor. And Manjuro is the drug I've been taking, so love it. So Manjuro, we've heard that from people. It's like a form of diabetes. I go Zempic. So he went from 352 to 290. But the question is, will he keep it off? Yep. See you tonight at 8. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.